0: Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to Success at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, good day. Welcome to Garden Success. Uh, we are a call-in show and best radio occurs when you call in. Whatever you're interested in talking about, we will be happy to uh, visit with you. Maybe uh, you'd like to email, uh, send a picture t- for identification or for diagnosis. Uh, it's wide open. You can call us at 979-845-5689, or you can email me at gardensuccess at Dot Edu Garden Success at T A M U. Edu. Well, I think we're going to jump right into the emails today. This is unhappy, sick tomato leaf day on Garden Success, so we're going to get going uh, with uh, some of the things that that we're starting to see. Uh, Kathy emails an, a tomato with some yellowing leaves, uh, and uh, there's quite a bit of um, you know d- yellow through the plant but unlike normal uh, it's not the new growth yellowing it's not the old growth yellowing so much but it's just kind of all over and in a very erratic pattern and my best guess because it's so extensive is that this is a nutrient deficiency and so there are a number of nutrients that can cause yellowing and and it's primarily on leaves that are a little older uh, but uh, that would indicate that we may be dealing with a mobile element when the, the plant can move around in it. Uh, so I would give those tomatoes a fertilization with a complete fertilizer, uh, preferably something with a little higher nitrogen in the number. Now, you can do that with one of the liquids, you know, the little products you mix in water and, and water with. That's a real fast way to get nutrients to them Um Not the most economical if you have a big garden and you're treating a lot of plants. Uh, But I noticed, uh, Kathy, your tomatoes are in a container that looks a little on the small side, considering the size of the plants. Uh, Tomatoes, to have success with them here, we need to kind of make it pretty foolproof. And what I'm talking about is if you have a tomato and it's in like a three-gallon container, let's say, uh, it's going to hit a point where... The, the growth is just not going to take off well because the container soil volume is limiting the the size and vigor of that, of that plant. Now, if you are watering it twice a day or three times a day, and if you're fertilizing it with a dilute solution on a re- very regular basis, yeah, you can probably get by with that. But I'd rather put a tomato in a 10-gallon container, at least uh, a Five, but really, if it's a small tomato, but a, any size at all, ten gallons for sure. And that way, the, just think about that: the whole volume of soil that's in that container is the only place that tomato can get water and nutrients. So when water is lacking in a in a container like that, that tomato goes into stress. It can go into stress by the end of the day. You water it in the morning, and if it is oversized for the container, uh, before you get to the evening, it's already in water stress. And when that happens, a lot of things can go wrong in the plant. Uh, The other thing is the nutrient content. The larger volume of soil gives more of a bank account where nutrients can be stored uh, and where water can be stored as well. So I I think in the future, going with a much larger container would be helpful. Uh, I would use a fertilizer. You can use a standard fertilizer with the three numbers on the bag, or you could use something that includes uh, micronutrients. Um, and that would be, you know, things like uh, our organic fertilizers typically have micronutrients in them because they're. Built or developed from plant material, those fertilizers, and so when you when you have that kind of a of a mix, you're getting the microbes along with the big three on the fertilizer bag. Uh, there are also products that help uh, provide trace minerals, trace elements that you could use to this. My gut though is that we're probably looking at nitrogen or maybe magnesium on those tomato leaves they don't quite show the symptoms perfectly of either one but i think that's what we're probably looking at So that's a yellow tomato leaves also by the way kathy as i look at the at the plant leaves it i um, the pictures a little bit of a distance to tell for sure but you may have some spider mites going on underneath there put a white piece of paper underneath some leaves and thump them very sharply with your, your with your finger or thumb. Uh, and then see what falls onto that white paper. If there's spider mites on the leaves and you really sharply pop that leaf to knock them off, you will see them on the paper crawling around. Very small, kind of a brown to a, a, a burgundy-ish brown color. And that's spider mites. And if that's the case, you need to, to treat for those if you find those. Uh, we also had a question uh, that came in from uh, Scott, and excuse me, I'm, I'm, now I'm going to go first to Beth. Beth had a question about tomato leaves, and it, it's a very interesting. There's a yellowing also on those leaves, and there are, is brown areas between the veins, and typically w- they don't look like bacterial spots. They look more fungal if they're spots indeed. Uh, But the location of them doesn't quite fit how a fungus would randomly affect, a leaf spot fungus would randomly affect a a tomato leaf. So I'm thinking, again, we may be looking at a nutrient issue going on and where the the tissues have just collapsed there. But it's also possible that that it is fungal-related. I just can't make the guess on it. I would remove older foliage that's showing those symptoms and, uh, again, a fertilization, get some vigor on the plants, and uh, providing, again, some of the micros just to make sure we're covering all the bases. And uh, then, finally, uh, check for spider mites. Again, I see what looks like a little bit of spider mites coming on, Beth. Uh, and that uh, you know will take the plant down. As it gets hot and dry and dusty, the spider mites just... Proliferate like crazy, and so we want to want to be watching, taking care of that. Now I'm going to go over to uh, Scott's uh, email. Scott has a, a tomato patch with the same kinds of symptoms. This kind of unusual uh, yellowing, primarily on the older leaves, for his, and I think that's probably a nutrient situation. Uh, also, I uh, just just a comment: when tomatoes grow everywhere on that stem where there's a leaf, at the where the leaf joins the stem, the leaf petiole and the stem come together, there's a bud and that bud can be a shoot. And so if you don't ever prune or sucker, de-sucker your tomatoes, you end up with this mass of foliage with a lot of vines and, and things. And that's okay, uh, it just that your, your fruiting is going to be delayed a little bit and there's a lot of competition within the plant uh, with all the different fruits on the different shoots. But also the foliage gets so dense that we start to see an increase in some disease problems. And I think that, Scott, when I'm looking at them, that, that's probably the case. Generally, if you're going to raise a tomato in a cage, I would remove the first two or three suckers and then let some of them form after that. Let's say from one trunk, now you have three trunks going, and maybe you're removing some suckers on those because it just absolutely will fill the cage with dense foliage. And as a result, uh, it's shading out parts of the plant and uh, just doesn't doesn't, uh, perform as well when it comes to minimizing diseases. So that's something I would consider on those. A uh, question also came in from Scott, a really good picture, by the way, um, of two vines on the ground, side by side. And this is the best shot. I wish I could show you on the radio because uh, as you look at them, one vine has five leaves that all come together in one point, And the other line has three leaves that all come together at one point. Well, the five-leaf vine is uh, Virginia creeper, and that is a very common plant. The leaves do look somewhat like poison ivy I mean there are significant differences but overall if you don't have them side by side like this you could mistake one for the other. Uh, The poison ivy is just three leaves that's why they say leaves of three let it be. And uh, so you will definitely want to get the poison ivy out of there. The Virginia Creeper can be a weed or it can be something that's desirable in terms of, you know, ground cover or going up a tree. So you just have to decide if you like to keep that one. But the poison ivy one, I I think, uh, could come out. Well, they say when I keep talking in a monologue, the phone doesn't ring. So let's make the phone ring. It's 979-845-845. 979-845-5689. Five six eight nine nine seven nine eight four five fifty six eighty nine. Uh 5689 Just continuing on, Scott has a picture. He His nectarine tree, he put organza bags all over the fruit, and that is a great thing. I, I think that should take care of a lot of the bird pecking. But what's happening is the uh, five bags were uh, off the tree and in the yard with a missing nectarine, and that does sound like... Uh, perhaps a squirrel uh, would be involved in that. I' little surprised they would haul the half-eaten nectarine around. In other words, remove it from the property. But that is a bit of a mystery. Please keep watching it and keep me posted because I, I would like to to know. I've I've not used organza bags for fruit protection before, but I see even research-based, you know, extension service kinds of things around the country that that talk about that. So. Uh, I let's let's keep going on it. I know squirrels are so dead gum resourceful that pretty much anything you do, they kind of outsmart and overcome, uh, and, and hopefully that's not the case here. But it's possible it could be. Well, we're going to go to the phones now. The number again: nine seven nine eight four five fifty six eighty nine, or by email at success at tamu. dot edu, and we are going to talk to Bob. Hello, Bob.
1: Hi, Skip. Hey, I've got a couple of questions about snow peas. Okay. Uh, Once again this year, my vines just look wonderful, huge vines, full of fruit. But then after a, a couple of three weeks or whatever, they start to die. And when you look down near the ground, what used to be a green stem going into the ground, almost the size of a pencil, now it's the size of a match stem and brown. Uh, okay. Any idea?
0: Yeah, that sounds like a, a some sort of a fungal or possibly bacterial disease down there uh, on the base of the stem, which would which would mean it could be soil born. Uh, mm. You know, the the full answer would be to pull one up when it is alive but sick, as you described,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and. Um, and send it or drop it off at the state plant clinic you can go online to plantclinic.tamu.edu and get the form to fill out they do charge a fee for it but they would actually name what the disease is and once we know that options for control become a little clearer Uh, we can have all kinds of diseases on various vegetables including uh, peas cool season peas but in general, if you've got good organic matter in the soil, good drainage and you have a mulch on the on the surface to you know protect uh, from uh, washing away of the soil, protect from crusting to block out weeds, that combination tends to work pretty well so if if this is an ongoing problem for you, then it's probably worth having a sample done so we can figure out what you might be able to do
1: okay. There's not going to be a curing,
0: the existing ones.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, um, not all of them died, so we had, once again, an abundant harvest of uh, delicious snow peas. Some of them that are left have now gotten very large. You know, the peas are fully formed. Should I leave those on the vine to dry to save for seed, or would it be all right to pick them and shell them and then let the peas dry?
0: Do you remember what the variety was you planted?
1: I think they're Oregon uh, Sugar Snap.
0: Okay. Um, off the top of my head, I, I don't know if that one... Actually, it, Sugar Pod, I don't know. Mm. Uh, I didn't know the Oregon was a snow pea, but that that may be. Uh, but you can check and see if it's a, a hybrid or an open pollinated variety. And uh, you would just you know go to where they're sold, and if you see like the ed- letter F1 after them or something, it's probably a hybrid. If you don't, then it's probably open pollinated, or you could just kind of do a Google search and, and find out. If it's open pollinated, then yes, save the seed. There it'll be come back true to form. If it's a hybrid, don't save the seed because the mm-hmm. results will be a scattering as different as the children of a family are from either parent. <laughs> <laughs>
1: all right, all right. Well, uh, again, well, well, if they are open pollinated, would it be all right to shell the green ones and then let the green pea dry out? Or do they need to dry out in the pod?
0: I would let them as much as possible dry out in the pod uh, outside, uh, they, they hit a mature stage where they are viable and they can dry and then be a, a viable seed. Uh, and th- that's of course, after they're the full size, they're going to be, uh, but I always like to let things start to dry down at least before I, I gather them. And then you can finish drying them in the house. You just, when they're real wet, uh, they sometimes in certain environments, if you don't have them spread out nice and air movement and whatnot, it could, uh, it could cause some decay and and rather avoid that.
1: All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Skip.
0: Yeah, thanks. C- congratulations right, on the snow peas. Those are good to grow. Yeah,
1: they, they, they're wonderful.
0: All right. Well, we are going to now go back to the phones and talk to Wolf. Hello,
2: Wolf. Hello, Skip. I talked to you last week and uh, got your advice about uh, how to deal with uh, these Multitude of tiny weeds. I'd been scraping them, and uh, he suggested uh, trying some vinegar. So I got the vinegar. Uh, it was uh, 30%. I, I diluted it down <clears throat> to half that and sprayed some with pole and some with, with half. And it was in the late afternoon. By the evening, nothing had happened, no change. Uh, next morning, didn't really see any change but then the sun came out, and boy, did it have an impact.
0: The the vinegar? Yes, the vinegar. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Vinegar. So that really worked.
0: Yeah, it does. It. I mean, it's like spilling gasoline on a weed. I mean, it, it, it fries <laughs> it. But it works best, and you get the immediate results if you can find a pretty warm, sunny day with the sun baking down. Temperatures, you know, at least in the 70s. Uh, then then it really works well. When we have kind of yeah. overcast and it's 54 degrees and a little misty, maybe rainy, it's, you're not going to get as good of results with the vinegar.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. That that was a real key to, it, to its success. And, and, you know, you can do it on uh, little weeds coming through cracks in cement or asphalt or wherever. It uh, really knocked it out. Yeah. So I just wanted to tell you... Uh, Good news story. Well, really good. Hit the, uh, the, the advice.
0: Okay. And I'm just curious if you happen to remember, did it say what percent vinegar it was? Was it 8 or 10 or 20? Or, it,
2: it was 30. 30?
0: Uh, oh, my yes. gosh. Okay. Well,
2: this, it you came from the cleaning, uh, uh, one of the big stores. Uh, okay. The cleaning thing. Now, on it, it said for Holder. Uh, uh, horticultural items use it full strength, but I, since you had said like five to eight percent, I diluted it yeah. down to to fifteen. Yeah, uh, from thirty.
0: Well, just to that that's fine. And just to be clear, though, uh, it should be no lower than eight percent, eight to ten percent. The five percent is like a household vinegar, and it'll burn stuff a little bit, but it doesn't do the full job. Like uh, a vinegar that's at least ten percent does they do sell twenties out there uh, but you just need to be careful because this is an acid uh, acetic acid uh, vinegar yeah uh, if you splash it in your eyes uh you know they're even though it's organic per se it's it's like a uh, uh, uh not necessarily totally safe if you're not careful with it.
2: It says on the uh, container to wear a mask and uh, uh uh goggles uh, uh, which I did.
0: Yep, yeah, I agree so, with well, you you did it right then.
2: Yeah, and uh I actually took some vinegar from the kitchen and tried uh, that a little bit and it, and that's 5%. Yes. Uh and it worked, but yeah, uh, yeah. the stronger stuff is better.
0: Yep. Yeah. And if you know if you're if you're dealing with a real tough weed, it it the stronger works better. If you had a bunch of, you know, you'd plowed your garden and a bunch of little tiny seedlings are coming up and they're tender, the 5% will burn those just fine. Uh, but yeah. uh, not, you know, some of the weeds we're trying to get with it, uh, you, you need something a little stronger.
2: Oh, yeah, it's big things. Uh, I I was just trying to get all the little ones and then we put more mulch on and it still it was somehow coming through there.
0: All right. Thank you very much. All right, Roger. Uh, Wilf, thanks for that report. Uh, Speaking of Roger, we are going to go back to the phones. By the way, the number is 979 845 5689, and we're going to talk to Roger. Hey, Roger. Howdy, Skip. Howdy.
3: I've got a uh, 10 foot crepe myrtle in my backyard that last year was uh, really nice and had lots of blooms, everything else. Now, this spring. there's only a few leaves on it. The leaves look okay, uh, but and there's no no black stuff on the on the, the limbs and things.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: But uh, it's just not. It doesn't seem to be prospering at all. And, you know. Uh,
0: yeah, I'm I'm hearing that a lot, and I'm seeing it some around town too. And uh, what I am attributing it to primarily is the December freeze this past year because a lot of plants that are normally very hardy uh, did not fully harden off. They didn't, you know, switch from an active growth state to more of a dormant uh, state. And the freeze kind of caught them off guard. And I've seen that in a lot of different things. But I think the crepes, I think that's part of what we're seeing. There's not some big disease going around, you know, killing crepe myrtles. We've got the bark scale, which, you know, that, you know, that that makes the black and yours doesn't have the black on it. No. Uh, But as far as, you know, diseases, they're a tough plant. I mean, they really are a tough plant. Uh, And so I just think that dieback is a cold-related. I'd prune out everything that's brown, that's dead, and then just, you know, give them some boosts of fertilizer. You can use a lawn fertilizer. Uh, If you can mulch a bigger area, that's better. Because the wider the area you mulch, the more they don't have to compete with grass, and that keeps the lawn and weed eater away, uh, yeah. and uh, just a good soaking occasionally when we get into the hot, dry weather. Uh, that's that's what I would recommend at this time for them.
3: Okay, all right. I've got I've got the mulch. I've got the uh, grass away from the base, about no, oh, just about what, uh, the extent of the uh, area around the. Uh, okay. Uh, the, and none of it seems to be, you know, I've tried to see how flexible some of the branches are. And they're, they're, they're quite flexible. So okay. it, it doesn't seem like it's, it's dead.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I I would just give it time. I think this is a year where you just try to recoup, where you try to regrow and reestablish that plant in, in, in oh. a healthy state. Uh, and then it should be okay. Uh, but just kind of a wait watch and, and help it along. I think would be the best thing. Just remember, if you use a fertilizer, a lawn fertilizer, definitely not anything with weed control products in it. Not a weed nope. and feed, just fertilizer. Got, yeah, I got you.
3: Okay, sir, I'll sure, I'll sure do that. I'm, I'm I am relieved.
0: All right, good. Well, uh, keep us posted. Hopefully, it'll kick into gear.
3: Okay, uh, thanks so much.
0: You bet. You're listening to Garden Success. I'm your host, Skip Richter, and we're here to answer your gardening questions. So feel free to give us a call at 979-845-5689. Or you can email me at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Gardensuccess, one word, at tamu.edu. And we'll be happy to visit with you about that. I'm going to go back to the emails. I um, had an email from Lewis on Floratam, Floratam St. Augustine. Some of you may have heard of that before. And I think on a previous show, I mentioned that it's not a, a preferred variety for us here in the Bryan College Station area. And uh, the concerns about it, Lewis was asking about the concerns and what variety do I recommend. The, the concerns about Floratam, let me first give the pluses of Floratam. It is a very tough and among the St. Augustine's, it's a drought-tolerant uh, variety compared to the others. The negatives of it are it's a very rangy plant. Instead of more of a dense plant with, um, you know, nice, pretty green foliage, it tends to kind of get a little lanky. Uh, it, um, the, the, the foliage is more of a—the co- overall appearance of the lawn with time is a coarser appearance to the lawn. Now, and that's one reason. Another reason is Floritam is among our least hardy St. Augustine's. So when we do have bad, bad cold, it would be the one that would get hit, whereas others may not. Uh, And then a final reason is flortam, for some reason, is very sensitive to a lot of the broadleaf weed control products. And when you go to the garden center and you pick up something to kill broadleaf weeds in your lawn, and you turn it over oftentimes it'll say it's labeled for st augustine except for floratam and and so that would be another reason now if you want a lawn that you can just mow and forget and you know just a big ol area and you don't it's not you don't have to have the show place there you just want a good lawn over it floratam's a good tough variety and it i mean it it's it's a survivor uh but just remember those negatives that I mentioned. Now, what variety do I recommend of St. Augustine for a new home? There are a lot of good varieties out there. Raleigh has always been kind of a standard for us. Um, Raleigh, spelled like the city in North Carolina. Uh, there are a lot of new varieties now uh, that, that are they're doing well. And depending on who the grass supplier is, you're going to have different uh saint augustine varieties so me you know if if it's a king ranch turf uh product for example there's going to be certain varieties or crenshaw uh dugay kind of uh, products are going to be a little bit different um uh, so I, I think rather than giving you a um you know an, ag, an a um, variety name or list i think it would probably be better uh, to just suggest it wherever you purchase it, if you see the varieties that are for sale there, I'd, I'd be happy to comment on, on which ones uh, do, do well here. Uh, I think you're probably going to do well with pretty much anything you purchase. Uh, it's just that there may be some subtle Uh, changes that are are different and I say I'm not giving you a variety I'm actually gonna mention a couple there there's one called Palmetto that's for sale pretty widely and so if the place where you buy it happens to be the company that that's their product uh, the the turf producer company then uh, you can you can find uh, palmetto and it and it does well. Uh, we've we've got some others. Raleigh, of course, is still still on the list. There's one that used to be around uh, called a that's a little more shade tolerant and it's a a smaller Saint Augustine. I, I wouldn't use the term dwarf, but maybe just think of something where when you look at it, the size of the re- leaf blades and things, about maybe two thirds the size. Uh, uh, of, the, of the regular, uh, something close to that. Uh, Shade does have some issues with the large patch disease in the shady areas, especially when we overwater and overfertilize, uh, but that would be another one uh, that you might consider. But uh, whatever you can find for sale uh, where you are is going to be good. I just would avoid the one called Common St. Augustine. It's no variety at all, and it, it, has, some, uh, vi- it has a particular virus issue uh, that's a problem with it. So hopefully that answers your question there, Luis. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at TAMU.edu. Gardensuccess at TAMU.edu. I had an email from uh, Shelby about a yard with lots of uh, tree coverage over it it's a couple hours of morning sun and looking for some native or at least non-invasive plants that you can put in a garden bed Uh, and then uh, preferably if it could also be something pollinator friendly that'd be good that's a that is a tough combination I think I'd kind of have to sit down for a while and and go through the options uh, of what you what you might try there Uh, there are um, being in that much shade you're you're really limited on the number of plants that you can choose from that will grow in the shade that are also native, and that would also um, uh, be perhaps pollinator friendly. Uh, One that I would include would be the Hinkley's Columbine. Hinkley's Columbine, it's a West Texas native, uh, but when we plant it here, we typically put put out the seed or the plants in the fall. They go through the wintertime, and then in spring they bloom big, beautiful, yellow blooms above the foliage. If you have adequate moisture, uh, the, the plants will survive for another year or two. Uh, but typically we watch some of the old plants decline, but the new seedlings that the plants produce come up. So you have an ongoing flow. So that would be, that would be a native uh, that would do well uh, in that shady area. I'm trying to think of another one. Uh, there are some good ground covers that are native. Uh, but they're gonna want they're gonna want sun in most cases, and they're they're not gonna have blooms to write home about. So if you if you're just looking for native and you don't care about a big showy bloom, uh, then there are some options that would be for that. And by the way, the um, uh, Post Oak chapter of the Native Plant Society of Texas uh, is having their native plant sale, and that will be from 9 a.m. to noon or until they sell out at lick creek park out at lick creek park on rock prairie road east of highway six and uh, so if you want more information you can go to npsot which is native plant society of org slash wp slash post oak so uh, maybe just a google search for Native Plant Society of Texas post Oak chapter would be a little faster way to figure that out. Uh, but anyway, they're gonna have some plants. Uh, they've got some different natives on hand that uh, you know you may find of interest. Uh, just, uh, just something else uh, to consider. Uh, they're, they're gonna have frog fruit, by the way, too, and that's a, that's a pretty interesting uh, native. Uh, but again, for sun, it's a good, good uh, low-growing native that'll do well uh, in the sun uh let's see i think and shelby that's my that's my initial answer if if we can kind of nail it down more to um you know d- does it need to be a flower you're just looking for foliage uh you know could it be a ground cover or what what else uh, i can give you a little bit better answer i think a little more thorough answer uh with that it's always a challenge to to recommend plants for people uh, you know the. I, I just am asked all the time, things like, well, I've got a flower bed and I would like something pretty to put in it. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, well, it's like giving me your credit card and saying, go to the mall and buy me some clothes. Uh, you know I do you like American outfitter do you want something from Dillard's? I, you know what what uh, what style of clothing are you into do you do you like muted colors earthy tones or do you like bright lots of hibiscus flowers all over the, the clothes you see what I'm saying it, it it's it's hard uh, because everyone's Aesthetic tastes are different and everybody's landscape is a little different sometimes you can plant things that you know, like if you had a really nice native landscape and it had that nice natural look and you stick a big gaudy uh, hibiscus or something flower in it 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 might not look quite right Uh, although there are some uh, close to native hibiscus uh, to us here but you get the idea. It, it's uh, it's somewhat of a challenge. So it kind of helps to that's why pictures also help, you know When you see a picture you kind of can see the landscape you can see the setting and then it's a little easier to uh, try to, to, to Give specifics to but it's common, you know, and, that, and I understand people just Just need some plants and so uh, we try to help as best we can our phone number is 979-845- Five six eight nine, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu. Edu. Uh, Jill, uh, emails about uh, dandelions in St. Augustine. Got a St. Augustine lawn, and there's a ton of dandelions in there. And so, what do we do about them? Well, the options are: you can pull them out. Uh, there are tools that, are like a little Fork that you push down in the ground and it helps pop that long taproot out. Uh, there are other tools. You stand up and it, little fingers go down in the ground around the plant, and then when you lean the handle to one side, it pulls the weed out. And I think it's called Grandpa's weeder. I believe that's the one. Uh, my daughter gave me one of those for Christmas, and I've been when I first looked at it, I thought, yeah, I've been using it. And if it's the right kind of weed, it works really well because it reaches it's like sending three or four fingers down in the ground around the weed and then it just pulls it right out and there's many other versions of that so hand weeding would be an option uh, that uh, may be too tedious for you if you want to spray you need a broadleaf post emergence weed killer. And dandelions are not that difficult to spray. Typically it's going to be weed killers with like 2,4-D in them or something that's called Trimec, T-R-I-M-E-C. There are many other good broadleaf weed killers depending on the manufacturer. Uh, some of them will will have different mixes of products so therefore they are better against a wider range of weeds or uh, a different particular weeds. But dandelions are pretty straightforward. Uh, You do want to get that on soon. uh, And every time you let them bloom and go to seed, a good thing happens and a bad thing happens. The good thing that happens is honeybees, Go and they visit those flowers, and dandelions are one of the favorite yard weeds by honeybees. so you know you just think about a bunch of yards all over town with lots of dandelions well that that's good for our pollinators and, and so that's the good. The negative is is that you're waiting long enough for the flower to go away, so you better get it out of there before those seeds go floating around the yard uh, because that's how you get from a few dandelions to a lot of dandelions. And so you can kind of decide where on that spectrum you want to be, but just be aware uh, that, like chickweed and dandelion, are two really uh, popular weeds with honeybees. I've noticed out in the garden, when or in my yard, when I'm out, you know, pulling some weeds or doing something like that, uh, that that always kind of stands out is how popular they are uh, with with the bees themselves. Let's talk about some things going on around town. Uh, Today, Thursday, May 4th, from 6.30 p.m. to 7.30 at the Ringer Library, there is a program called Utilizing Tropicals as Summer Annuals, and this is, is put on by the gardens at Texas A&M University, the on-campus gardens that we now have there. Uh, and Utilizing Tropicals as Summer Annuals, it's free, it's open to the public, and this is a program you really need to go to go here, and, 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 and this is... This is why, when when we get into summertime, it is humid and it is hot. And there are plants from environments like that, that thrive, and typically they would be considered a tropical plant. Uh, now, they're not gonna go through the winter, so we use them as an annual plant. But there are tropicals with beautiful foliage, and then that's important. I, use, I depend on colorful foliage for a lot of landscape color just because it goes through that blazing hot weather where our number of blooming options goes down considerably. Uh, And then there are beautiful blooms on them. But back to the talk, Ringer Library Gardening Series, 6.30 to 7.30 tonight, free at the Ringer Library. Uh, if you uh, want to drop in, and I think it'll be an excellent presentation. Anything done by the folks at the Gardens at a and is going to be well done and, and well worth uh, attending. On Saturday, May 13th uh, is Bird Day. And that means out at Lick Creek Park, again on Rock Prairie Road, there is the International Migratory Bird Day and they're going to do a hike through lick creek park not the birds the people and explore the brazos valleys native and migrating species of birds so if you got binoculars you might want to bring those along by the way saturday may 13th it's from 10 a.m to 1 p.m out at lick creek park you can become a bird enthusiast and trust me uh, once you get into it it's it's pretty cool uh, my uh, my kids got me a bird feeder for Christmas that has a camera in it and it has a motion sensor. And whenever a bird lands on the feeder, it takes a picture and it takes a video of them. And so it, it interprets, um, you know, what it thinks that species of bird is. And it's pretty good, but not completely trustworthy on that, but, uh, it, it's kind of cool. Well, it, it sends a signal to my phone. I set it up that way. And so my phone is buzzing all day, and it's every time a bird shows up. So I'm going to have to back down on that a little bit. But I have noticed that there are a couple of doves, regular old doves, that are frequencing the feeder way more than all the other birds. In fact, they're kind of, they must be the bully of the feeder or something because uh, I, I'm tired of looking at pictures of doves <laughs> that, that are going on. Anyway, kind of fun, so even I uh, can appreciate a good, cool bird uh, activity. Uh, On Saturday, May the 6th, the Rio Brazos Audubon Society is meeting, also at Lick Creek Park. And this is at 8.30 a.m., and they're going to have their Birding 101 Bird Walk. So this will be a chance for you to learn how to identify birds by sight and by their song. Uh, walking through with folks that are experienced and know what they're doing. Again, if you got binoculars, bring them. But they'll have a few loaners on hand where you can kind of, you know, check it out. You can find more at RioBrazosAutobahn.org. RioBrazosAutobahn.org. Uh, that is Saturday, May the 6th, just around the corner from us now. Our phone number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689. Or you can reach me by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Next Tuesday, May 9th, the Bryan College Station Rose Society is meeting. Now, if you want to find out more about it, for the program information and directions, you can call Mary, and here's the number. It's a 979 number, 680-8046, 680-8046 to find out about where and what with the, the Bryan College Station Rose Society. Uh, Then on uh, May 10th, here we are with the Rio Brazos Audubon Society again, 6.30 p.m. at the Brazos Valley Museum of Natural History. That's out on Barcrest Drive, just east of the bypass. And Lori Brown will be talking about conservation and College Station and Bird City. Uh, Lori is uh, working with the City Parks Department and uh, really focusing on conservation efforts here. College Station uh, you know, in, has put a, put a real effort into to, uh, uh, taking things up a notch on the conservation and the parks and, and whatnot. So that is Wednesday, May 10th, next Wednesday, 6.30 p.m., Brazos Valley Museum of Natural History, and you can uh, put that on your calendar in case you're interested. On May 12th, I guess that would be Friday. Uh, the A and M Garden Club is meeting at Peace Lutheran Church, and that's a 9:30 in the morning meeting. They uh, they are uh, Peace Lutheran is on Rio Grande Boulevard, right where it comes into 2818, uh, in the south. Well, used to be South Part of College Station. Now it's, it's Probably mid-college station, just about. But anyway, uh, the com. A-M, not an and, just amgardenclub.com. You can find out more. They're going to have their regular end-of-the-year potluck and then the the meeting as well. Well, that's a lot of things, a lot of things to be doing out and about. Uh, Remember also, we always have our farmer's markets, and I like to promote them at least from time to time. Uh, But if you are interested in fresh produce grown uh, locally, uh, you should check out some of our farmer's markets. Now, the Brazos Valley Farmer's Market is the one downtown in Bryan at Main and 21st Street, and it's Saturdays from 8 to noon. And they've got all kinds of things you would expect at a farmer's market, you know, produce, and uh, there's baked goods, there's jellies, and so on. Uh, they even have some live music uh, occasionally there, and a uh, the food truck or two uh, is available. That's the Brazos Valley Farmer's Market, Saturday a.m. to noon, downtown Bryan, Main and 21st Street. The South Brazos County Farmer's Markets uh, are there on are uh, oh, not there. They are at the corner of University and Glenhaven across from the Scott and White Clinic. So if you're heading out University toward the bypass, uh, you would turn on the street right before you would reach the bypass, and uh, that is Glenhaven. And they'll be across from Scott and White there on your right. Local produce, uh, free-range eggs, herbs, gems, and jellies, all the things you expect from a, from a farmer's market. And that is on Tuesday from noon to five, and again on Friday from noon to five. So at the location on Glenhaven, the South Brazos County Farmers Market, Tuesday and Friday, both days noon to five. Then there is Farm Fridays out on Tabor Road. Uh, This is 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And the address is 2861 FM 974. And they have all kinds of things available, of course, as well uh, there from local growers a lot of lot of farmers market opportunities for for the community and you should take advantage of them Uh, there's you may find that there is uh, some vegetables you haven't tried growing before and the growers who bring them and sell them they can tell you how to prepare them uh, and kind of introduce you to that Uh, it also gives you the chance to uh, meet and look at the person who grows your food that's something that for a lot of folks is important uh, you know, being able to look eye to eye and this is the person, they can tell you how they grew it. and uh, It's just a, it's almost, I guess it's in between a grocery store and, and your own home garden. Uh, closer probably to the, the home garden being pretty pretty locally uh, directed when it comes to those uh, produce sources. You're listening to Garden Success. I'm your host, Skip Richter, and we are here to answer gardening questions. Give me a call or you can email me at gardensuccess at TAMU.edu, gardensuccess at TAMU.edu. And if you're out and about perusing things online, you might check out the KAMU website. Uh, the Garden Success Show is there. You can listen to past shows at, at, the, at the website. And also, uh, I just put an article up that the folks here have put together, uh, and it is uh, Skips Tips for Your Lawn. It's just some basic tips on having a beautiful lawn. And so uh, that would be on the KAMU-FM uh, page. Go check out Skips Tips for Your Lawn. Talk a little bit about vegetable gardening. This is the beginning of summer. Uh, We are on the verge of summer. So when you look at uh, the planning chart that I put together, which by the way is free and it's also available on the Master Gardener, Brazos County Master Gardeners website, uh, or you can pick one up at the AgriLife Extension office. Uh, By the way, our office, for those of you who haven't been out there, is right next to the tax office uh, on, Uh, the uh, east side of the bypass, just inside Highway 30. So if you want to pick one up, you can get them there. But if you look at that chart, there's a lot of bars of green, which means this is the time you plant stuff, in the January, February, March, and April. And then that begins to show up again in very late August and going through September, October, November. The summertime is not as many options Uh, that's when a lot of the things that we planted in the spring, squash, cucumbers, tomatoes, they don't set well because it's too hot. So we switch over and we consider our warm season. Now eggplant is one that is pretty good even in the heat. It's a pretty tough plant. does pretty good. Peppers will grow through the summer. They just won't produce well again until we get into the fall. Uh, But melons like a cantaloupe melon, a honeydew melon, a watermelon... Those all can be planted now. We are in a prime time for getting that kind of thing in the ground. Uh, Okra, which it never gets too hot and humid for okra, uh, can be planted now as well. Uh, Southern peas, and southern peas are uh, things like black eye pea, purple hull pea, crowder pea, zipper cream pea, pink eye purple hull, all those kinds of things. They're southern peas they can be planted now as well they take the heat quite well and i just have a little bit of a gripe uh, occasionally i like to get on a bit of a soapbox but uh the beans and peas we um we misuse those terms Uh, so for example uh, peas are typically a cool season thing like earlier we had the call uh, from um Bob on snow peas, but like snow peas, sugar snap peas, the English peas that you shell out of a pod, those are all cool season peas. The warm season is the time when we grow our beans, and there are some uh, some types of bean that is more of a of a warm season bean than a, than a pea, but we call them peas, and all those that I just mentioned are examples of that. They're very tropical, and they. um they do well in, in hot, very hot, humid weather conditions. Another one, and for some reason we call this one a bean, is the yard-long bean. That is the the beans that you grow on a trellis, and the pods literally almost reach a yard long. Uh, it, it's They're very long. But that is very closely related to black-eyed peas. But for some reason, we say black-eyed peas instead of black-eyed beans, and we say yard-long beans instead of yard-long peas. Yep, makes it confusing. People are trying to keep up with plants and figure stuff out, and the names just get thrown all over the place. That's another reason why uh, proper names, you know, the scientific name, the botanical name is is a better way to go on plants because when you say something is a butterfly such and such or a hummingbird such and such, there's depends on where you live in the country as to what you might be talking about when you use uh, terms like that. Uh, also for summer, the sweet potato is the the one of the kings of the summer garden. Sweet potato slips are available. You buy a little bundle of them and plant them in the ground, and they they uh, form a plant that develops those nice big swollen roots that is the part we harvest. By the way, did you know that you can eat sweet potato greens? You can. Uh, I've been a horticulturist for over 34 years now, and I never until about three years ago knew you would eat sweet potato greens. They just never came up. And some people were talking to me about it, and there was actually a, a, a professor at Prairie View that was working on developing a strain or evaluating sweet potato strains for upright growth. You know how they sprawl to the side. Well, if the shoots would come up, you could go over the field with a little harvester and just mow them off, and and have sweet potato greens that could also be sold. It, it's a more uh, labor-saving uh, way to to uh, to harvest sweet potato greens. But anyway, that's all on the side. Uh, but sweet potatoes are a good summer summer crop. Do do super well here. Uh, winter squash and pumpkins. Now, winter squash and pumpkins are basically all in, in the same general category. And these are squashes that we grow to eat when they're mature. Summer squash we eat when they're immature. So if you let a zucchini reach a point where the skin is leathery tough and the seeds are hard inside, like a pumpkin, it wouldn't be worth eating. But when we pick it immature, it's very tender. The seeds are small. That's true with cucumbers. That's true with yellow squash. That's true the patty pans and uh, all the summer squashes. Winter squash, on the other hand, we let fully mature. And we let that skin kind of harden. So think about a pumpkin and the kind of skin and the hollow cavity full of mature seeds. Think about a spaghetti squash, the same thing, a hard skin, and the the cavity full of seeds, uh, acorn squash, butternut squash, these are uh, kabocha type squash, that's another one I like. Uh, these are all cool, or winter squashes, and they're called winter squashes, here we go on the names again, uh, because when you grow them, especially when they mature in the fall, you can store them indoors and have squash through the winter. They store for different amounts of time, depending on the conditions and the actual species, uh, but that's why we call them winter squash. That, and just to confuse people, I think I've said this on the air one time, but I was driving through a big city that shall go unnamed, listening to a radio show that will go unnamed, uh, and the host (laughs) made the statement that winter squash are for growing in the winter and summer squash for growing in the summer. Eh, Wrong answer. That is not true. But giving them the wrong kinds of names just leads to such misconceptions. Summer greens can be planted now. Uh, Malabar. Uh, Malabar is a green that grows readily. It's got glossy leaves. It has a mucilaginous character. Now, if I were going to be uncouth, I would call it slimy. But I think mucilaginous at least sounds better. Uh, but it, like okra, it's, it's got that mucilaginous character to it. And uh, I think that's okay. I mean, there's ways to minimize it if you don't like it. But if you're making a soup or a stew or something, that's great for thickening the the uh, soup or stew that you're making as well. Malabar and amaranth. uh, There are uh, a lot of things that are weeds that we can grow in a vegetable garden for greens. So. Amaranth, if you got to the farms around here and you see pigweed, uh, that it's a nemesis of, of the farmer because they, one plant produces like 200,000 seeds, and they're just a pain to deal with. Uh, but there are types of amaranth that have been developed for big, attractive, succulent leaves, and those are called, I call them vegetable amaranth. Uh, it's a leafy green, but it can take the summer quite well. Another weed that we have edible versions of is purslane. Purslane comes up all over the place. Uh, It's a weed, and it's also an ornamental. You see purslane and portulaca hanging baskets that are just beautiful. They're succulent, so they they tolerate some drought uh, because they store moisture in their their leaves, Uh, but they're beautiful ornamentals. But now we've got the purslane that's a vegetable. And it may be a variety uh, called Gold Gelber. Uh, There is one called Mithra, M-I-T-H-R-A. There's one called Red Gruner, and there's some others as well. But these uh, have a larger leaf, and they do well in a vegetable garden. And so in the summertime, this is a good plant because number one, it's it's very tasty. It's crunchy almost uh, the texture. It has a lemony flavor to it, and best of all, it has it's very high in ma- omega-3 uh, fatty acids, and that's a good health thing uh, for us. So I put parsley in smoothies. Uh, I put it, you know, we we can put it in salads when it's young and tender. I mean, you can do a lot of things with it, uh, but. We tend to ignore these hot season greens because they're just not part of what we grew up with. And speaking of which, uh, most good hot weather greens are from some other part of the world. So if you go somewhere in the world where it is a humid hot jungle or, or the equivalent of that, you're likely to find some greens that do well in the summer for here. Uh, the, uh, that, that is a common thing. Uh, the, another green that I've been growing for about ten years now is a Molokhia. Uh, there's different ways to spell it. Uh, all it's all over the place uh, how people spell it, but I spell it M-O-L-O-K-H-I-A. Molokhia. It is uh, one plant is all you need. Uh, I usually have two or three uh, just because what I what I do. They'll get like six feet tall eventually. Uh, They're only a summer plant. They don't live through the winter. But I'll shear them off to get more new shoots and growth because it's the tender leaves and growth that you want to eat. Molokia is a jute type plant. And so eventually the plant's fibers are very tough, like jute twine. Uh, but the foliage, when you pick it young, is very good. It's used, It's very popular in several parts of the country, uh, uh, Middle East. Uh, some of the Middle Eastern uh, nations uh, will, will use Molokia in like a rice dish or a lamb and rice dish. Uh, but there's a lot of other ways to cook it. Um, got a neighbor who makes kind of a pesto out of it. Uh, so I'm, just like you would use basil to make a pesto, they make a pesto with the Molokia leaves. So that's another one you might want to try. I guess there's probably a bunch more, but I think we're running out of time. You've been listening to Garden Success, and I'm your host, Skip Richter. We're here every Thursday from 12 to 1. We're also available by podcast. You can listen to us on the computer on the KAMU website, or you can download us as a podcast and subscribe so you get it every time there's a new show posted.